Today's scripture is from Hebrews 4:12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is the living word of God for us today. Amen and good morning. I'm Rob, and it is a pleasure to be with you all today. Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. The verse that was just read for us is the verse that we're going to focus on today. Let me just say while you're turning there, uh, for those of you that were up on the stage a minute ago, and I think most of you are still in the room, I could not be more excited and um, proud in in the, the best sense. We are all proud of you, and I couldn't be more excited to be launching you guys Um I don't know if it feels that way to you, but I was thinking about when you were up here, I thought, you know, we hope to have a building someday, you know, that will be a permanent home for Fellowship Franklin, and we honestly do, and today's not an update about that by any means, it just popped in my mind. And we'll dedicate that building someday, I'm sure, but it won't be as significant as dedicating living people to go forth from this place entrusted with the gospel and the gifts that the Spirit has empowered you all with. So I want to say thank you, and I want to say how excited I am to be with you. Now, we turn our attention to the Word of God, and we do this in each of our worship services at this point in time. You know, we've had some music, we've had some announcements, we've had some prayer and a chance to give, and then there's always a point where someone gets up on the stage and they read a verse or two or three or ten, and then they say, this is the living Word of God for us today. And have you ever thought about what that phrase actually means? And have you ever thought about if it's true that this is the living word of God, that it's alive, it's active, it's for us today, that has enormous implications for us. So this morning, we start a two-week series called Word-Centered, and that comes from one of our core values. In fact, we have a slide we'll put on the screen that lists all five of our core values. We are, as a church, we are word-centered, we are spirit-dependent, we are better together, we are courageously real, and we are not about ourselves. Now, we're not going to do all five values this summer. We're going to do a deep dive this week and next week on value number one, word-centered, and then we'll probably come back and, and do the other four at some point in the future over the next 12 to 18 months just to keep these in front of us. But why would we start with word-centered? Well, certainly, that needs to be our foundation. Certainly, the Word of God is our guiding instrument. You know, it's interesting that Bible is literally in the name of our church. You know, I joke around that, that Bible is our middle name. Well, what does it mean for us to be a word-centered church? What does it mean for us to be a Bible church, in a sense? We're going to dig into that. Now, word-centered could mean a lot of different things to a lot of different churches. So let me define it for you. This is what we mean when we say we're word-centered. Because God has revealed himself through the written word and the living word, we align our lives to the authority of Scripture and place Jesus at the center of all we are and everything we do. Let me break that down for just a minute. If God's revealed himself through the word of God written and the word of God living, that means the scripture and it means Jesus Christ. So the written word is the scripture. The living word is 
Jesus Christ himself. In John 1, uh, it says that the word became flesh. We'll talk about that a bit this morning. So therefore, because that's true, what are we gonna do? Well, we have to align our lives to the authority of scripture. We've gotta take it seriously. Next week is all gonna be about the authority, the truth and the authority of God's word next week. And we place Jesus at the center of everything we are and, every, and all, all that we are and everything we do. So you see that that definition is very carefully worded to represent what we mean when we say word-centered. Now, I'm gonna take it a step further we've written some demonstrated by statements to explain what it looks like for us to live this value out. And here's what we're going to do as a church. We're going to place ourselves under the authority of God's word for all decisions and direction, making Bible teaching a central component of every ministry area, utilizing an expository approach as a primary means of preaching. Expository just means explaining it, going to read it, explain it, apply it. That's how, that's how we teach here at, at Fellowship. Equipping people to engage God's word in their personal lives and pointing people to Jesus through every book of the Bible. That's what it means for us. I should say that's what it looks like for us to be word-centered at Fellowship Bible Church. Now, I told you a minute ago, next week we're gonna focus on the authority of God's word and the truth of God's word. We're not gonna start there. We're gonna start with a different idea. And I wanna explain why we're starting there. We're gonna start with the idea that God's word is living and active. Living and active. So this is where Hebrews 4.12, the passage that you already heard read, comes in. And we're going to look at that text. And, and I want to say this. If you believe that God's word is true, but don't believe it's alive, it'll have no relevance in your life. A dictionary is true. A dictionary has some authority to it, if it's a good, solid one. But it doesn't have any life for you and me. What does it mean for God's word to be alive? That's where we're going to go. So let me reread Hebrews 4.12, and we'll start digging into it this morning. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There's really two ideas in this one verse. Uh, and the first one is simply what I've already stated. God's word is living and active. And I'd like for you to say that with me, if you don't mind. We'll just say it together. God's word is living and active. God's word is living and active. Now, what does that actually mean? Well, let's break it down. There's, there are two words. Let me say, first of all, before we dissect the word living and active, we don't tend to think of scripture this way, do we? We don't think, tend to think of it as alive. And there's some things that I don't mean when I say alive. I don't mean it, it, it's a part of the Trinity. It's not God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible. That's certainly not it. But what does it mean for the God's word to be alive and active, living and active? We don't think of the Bible this way. You know how we think about the Bible? We think about the Bible as a religious textbook. We think about the Bible as a collection of moral teachings. We think about the Bible as something I've got to learn and then go enact so that I can have a lifestyle that would honor God. And none of that's false. All of that's true, but that's such a small, reduced vision of God's word compared to what the authors of Hebrews is saying when he says it's alive and well. It's, I'm sorry, it's living and active. It is alive and well too, but it's living and active. So let's break it down. What does he mean? And how can our view of God's word be expanded so we can have passion and energy for it? And by the way, no apologies. I'm hoping that some of my passion for God's word infects you this morning. That's one of my stated goals in my message. Now, we're gonna break it down this way. We'll start Start with the word living. What does that even mean? Well, it literally means alive. It means it's not dead. It means it has life to it. 
God's word, I might think to say it this way, God's word is a primary expression of his presence. The word of God is alive because God himself is alive and God's breath is in it. God's life is in it. I want to give you an analogy of how this, I think, kind of works. When I was really little, I was a bit afraid of the dark, not ashamed to admit. And uh, every now and then in my home, the power would go out. And, you know, when the power goes out and you're a little afraid of the dark, it's not good. You know, and you go and you flip on the light switch and the lights don't come on. That's kind of scary to little kids afraid of the dark. So uh, when this would happen, if I wasn't in the same room as my parents, I would make a beeline to find them wherever they were. Well, how would I find them if it's pitch dark? Listen for their voice. And I would hear their voices and I would find them. I'd go and then I could grab them. I could hold them. I could touch them, you see. Now, it was the words of my parents that reassured me that they were still there. I knew they were there because of the words they spoke. Now think about the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. What made them distinct from all the other people of the time? It was that God was present with them. Well, how was he present with them? How did they know he was present with them? Primarily his word. Primarily because he would speak to them. They couldn't see him. Now, there are a few rare instances in the Old Testament of visual manifestations, you know? So God allowed Moses to sort of see the the back of God as he walked by him, and, you know, it just lit Moses up. There are other times that God would manifest himself through fire or through a cloud as he led the people through, through Israel, and there are a couple other examples, but those were very small, few, and far between in the thousands of year history of God leading his people. Primarily, he was present with them, or at least his presence was expressed through his word given to Moses in the law, given in the prophets. The prophet would hear a word of the Lord and say, this is what God is saying, and he'd be a mouthpiece for God. God would speak to them. If you asked a Hebrew person, you know, before the time of Christ, how do you know that God is with you in your nation? They would say, because he speaks to us. How did he speak? Not audibly, typically. He spoke through his word. He still does. The word of God is a primary expression of his presence. Then we get to the New Testament and something amazing happened. This is how John described the coming of Jesus in John 1.14. The word became flesh. And so now they knew he was there because he was speaking. They heard his voice. Now they could touch him. Now they could put their arms around him. Now they could see him. Now they could speak to him back and forth. The word became flesh. The presence of God expressed through the word of God now had flesh, now had arms that would be stretched out, hands that would be pierced, blood that would be spilt for them. Now you might be thinking, okay, well today we don't have Jesus in the flesh around to to touch, put our arms around interact with face to face. And you're right. We don't. Someday we will. But not yet. Not now. He's with the right hand of the Father. But we also still have the presence of God. We have the presence of God through his voice, the Spirit of God speaking through the text. And we have the presence of God, the Spirit of God that indwells us. Isn't this fascinating? By the way, word and spirit are always connected. It's no accident that our second core value after word-centered is spirit-dependent. You see, the same author that wrote the scripture breathed it out through the human authors, 
All scripture is God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16. That's next week's test text. That same spirit's in you that is re-speaking, bringing life, enlivening the text as you read it or as you hear it taught. It's exactly what's happening right now as I teach you God's word. It's the same thing that happens when you study it, when you read it. The spirit of God gives it life, gives it breath. It's the same spirit, you see. So when we say God's word is alive, it's living, primarily what we're talking about is the word of God is a primary expression of his presence. God is with us, in a sense, through his words, you see. Now, let's talk about the second word, active. God's word is not only alive, but it's active. It comes from the Greek word that we get our English word, energy. Energy. So God's word has energy. So it's animated, you know, it, it, it's alive. It doesn't just sit there. It's on the move. The word itself has activity, has energy, isn't this interesting? How can this be so? Well, you might think of it this way. Not only is God's word a primary expression of his presence, but God's word is also a primary means of his work. God works through words. This has always been true since the very beginning. And the earth was formless and void and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God said, let the waters separate. And God said, let there be vegetation. And God said, let there be animals and birds. And God said, let there be human beings, you see. God works with words. Words are his tool to lead, to create, to bring up, to bring down the word of God. How did God form the nation of Israel? Through the words of a covenant. How did God accomplish your salvation? Through the word made flesh and through the proclamation, this person is now innocent by the blood of Jesus Christ shed for him or her. You see, it's a declaration. It's a divine judgment saying, not guilty because of Christ. That's a word spoken. Every time I, um, I do a marriage ceremony, I think about the power of my words. Think about this, a marriage ceremony. You, literally, a, a couple is going to go from two separate individuals according to the law of the land to a unified entity according to the law of the land. They can file their taxes as a married couple, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Why? Because I spoke a word. I now pronounce you man and wife. You see, our words do work too. Now, most of you in the room aren't pastors, but I bet most of you work with words. You write emails, you have meetings, you accomplish things, you get things done with words, you discipline your kids with words, you grow a relationship, sometimes you destroy a relationship with words. Words are not passive exchanges of information, words are active. How much more so with the spirit breath God's word speaking to us. It's not just alive, it's on the move. It's getting things done, it's working. How did you come to faith? Through the word of God spoken to you. How do you know where to go, which end is up, how to direct your life? How does God lead you? By his spirit speaking the word of God. You see, the word of God is alive. It's living, it's active. It's a primary expression of his presence and a primary means of his work on this earth. Now, when you and I say this is the living word of God for us today, we mean all of that. 
And so the reason that we say, and if you're not saying this yet, I want to start encouraging you to say it. The reason we say amen after that phrase, okay, this is the living word of God for us today, amen, is because amen is a Hebrew word that means yes, or let it be true. It is true and let it be true. So think about that. You know, this is the living word of God for us today. And everyone says, Amen. Amen. That means I believe that's true. It also means may that be true. May it be true for me. May this word be alive and active in my heart today because I need it. I need to be changed. I need to have life. I need to come alive. Amen. May it be. Let it be. That's why we say that word. By the way, some of you are asking, well, where did that, that come from? You know, I've heard something similar in other churches. A lot of churches, as a part of their service, will read God's word, and then they'll, they'll say something about it. Like, you know, oftentimes, you know, you're going to hear a different phrase, you know, the, the word of the Lord, and then thanks be to God, and this kind of thing. We specifically wrote, this is the living word of God for us today, because we wanted to reflect this idea that God's word is alive, it's active, it's for us. It's not old and stale and dry. It's alive. It comes straight from Hebrews 4.12. Now, that's just point one of this verse. <sighs> we doing okay? I want to go long today, but I'm not going to because we got a picnic to get to. So I'm going to start talking faster if, if I need to. So it's not only living and active, but there's a second point that comes from Hebrews 4.12, and that is God's word affects the whole heart. Would you say that one with me as well? God's word affects the whole heart. It is, according to Hebrews 4.12, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and here it comes, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What a vivid metaphor, this two-edged sword. It was the sharpest instrument of any instrument that they had in ancient times. Uh, I brought one with me, not, not one that would have been like what they had. This is not a Roman sword. This is more of a, of a medieval sword. By the way, this might be the coolest stage prop I've ever had a chance to use in a sermon. Ching! This is a two-edged sword. Now, I don't know what I'm doing with a sword, which is why I'm glad this one's not sharp. But uh, you think about you're in a battle, and if you're fighting an enemy who, who you know, is just basically holding a, a one-edged sword, you know, which there are, there are a lot of those, he, he kind of has to chop this way, and then after he chops, he's got to pull back. Well, you can go right, and you can go left. Not only that, but if you're going to stab this way, think about how much more effectively a two-edged sword is going to pierce through flesh or bones or, or marrow than a one-edged sword. Now, if you're following me in this message so far, it's a little frightening to think about the word of God that is alive and active, that's living and active, is, is like a sword. You know, it's sharper than a two-edged sword. And, and what's this? It's piercing to the thoughts and tensions of our heart? You mean the sword is directed at you and me? It is. It is. But this is where the analogy, I think, uh, takes a different direction. If you read the, the whole passage in its context, which I don't have time to teach it all through, but if you read it in its context, what you find is the sword is not piercing your heart for the purpose of killing you. The sword is piercing your heart for the purpose of bringing you back to life. And so the author's point is the sharpness of it. It's not just like a two-edged sword. It's sharper than. So it's even better than a sword. It's sharper than a sword. And its purpose is to dig down deep past your flesh into the heart, and there is going to give you life. Now, 
I have another image, another object that I've brought up with me that I think also carries this theme pretty well. Perhaps if the writer of Hebrews had had this, he might have used it this way. This is a surgeon's scalpel. Interestingly, when Eugene Peterson uh, did a paraphrase of the scripture, he, he uses the scalpel as the metaphor rather than the sword as the metaphor. And I think he's actually onto something. Um, the purpose of this is to cut through skin and, and, and tissue and, and separate and get down into the inner organs so that the surgeon can do his work of healing. This is a great example for what the word of God is all about. It's as if God in his word would say, um, man or woman, I desire to do a great work in you. And in order to do that great work, I have to go down deep. I have to cut down deep inside of you. And that does not come easily. But if you will allow it, I will remove the heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. Very interesting that the author of Hebrews uses the heart metaphor. No stranger are we to the heart metaphor now. We've been talking about it for six months in here. And remember, we tend to think of heart in our day and age as Americans just as the emotional place of you. That's not what the Bible says. The heart is the whole you inside. So we'll put this image on our screen. You've seen this a number of times if you've been at fellowship the last six months. The heart is the inner person. It's, it's not just your emotions, that's true, but it's your thoughts and emotions and desires and choices. And some of you, it's been a while since we talked about it this way, some of you will be surprised that scripture uses terms like the thoughts of the heart and the choices of the heart along with the desires of the heart and emotions of the heart. So for the Hebrew person, the writers of the scripture, the heart is the inner person. They didn't have a brain. They, well, they, they had a brain. They didn't know they had a brain. They didn't have a word for the brain. I guess they knew they had a brain. They didn't talk about it anyway. They didn't know what it was about. Back on track now. The idea with this is our mission is to help people find wholehearted life in Jesus. So your thoughts, choices, desires, emotions coming together with a cross at the center, isn't that convenient? Because Jesus is the one that's bringing us into wholeness. Now, with that in mind, what does it mean for the word of God to pierce through all the outer stuff and get to the inner stuff? Think about it this way. Thoughts, choices, desires, and emotions are all internal even your choices are internal until you act them out. Your emotions are internal until you express them. Your desires are internal until you go after them. Your thoughts are internal until you speak them or write them, you see. It's all internal until it finds an expression in the body. All right, you tracking with me so far? Here, here's where it gets interesting. Hebrews 4.12 teaches that God's word cuts through all the exterior, all the behavior, all the facade, and goes right down to the core of who you really are inside. And there, in that sacred space of your thoughts and choices and emotions and desires, God would desire to do a deep work. The work he would do would be the work of a heart transplant. Not, not just like correcting a few things, but giving you a brand new heart. That metaphor is all throughout scripture. So God's word is living and active. Where does it do its work? In the heart. God's word affects the whole heart. It's not just something to learn. It is that. It's not just something to learn and apply. It is that too, but it's something to learn and apply and love and desire. You see. So, 
what would it look like for our church to become even more word-centered? Maybe a better question is, what would it look like for us as individuals, families, singles, couples, young men, young women, children, students, what would it look like for us to become a more word-centered people? I think the answer is this. Because God's word affects the whole heart, we must engage God's word with our whole heart. I think that's our starting point. What would that mean? Let me get really practical. What would it look like to engage God's word with the whole heart? There are three things I think we need to do, and, and I'm gonna, you know, we're going to put these on here. They correspond to the quadrants. We're going to learn God's word with our thoughts. We're going to live God's word with our choices, but we're also going to pray that we start loving God's word with our desires and emotions. I connected those two together because I think emotions and desires are the, the place of love. That's where you, you would feel love and that, that's where the, the desires and expression of love would come out of you. So I want to talk about these three and I want to talk about them in this order because I think this is the order that it tends to happen. Learn God's word, love God's word, and you can live God's word. So let's break these down really briefly. We're going to start with learn God's word. This one is the, maybe the easiest to understand in a way. Here's what I would say this is going to look like for us as a church. Uh, individually, we want to encourage and equip you to engage God's word more in your personal life. I know that for many of you, the only exposure you have to God's word is this message or our 70-minute um, uh, service, which is all word-centered, by the way, not just the teaching part. But for most of you, that this is it. For others of you, maybe you read God's word occasionally. Um, you know, maybe you listen to podcasts or other teaching and all those things are great. Over the next year and then two and three and four years, we have a plan to help equip you and encourage you to find more life in God's word on your own and in small groups and in all contexts of your life. And, and I don't, you know, I'm not going to share much of that today, but if you remember, we have a strategy. We had you draw it on a napkin, and it's, it's very simply stated this way. We want you to engage with your church, which is here on Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights. We want you to be in your group, small group of people that we're going to keep calling you to be a part of, our fellowship groups. And those two venues, your church and your group, are going to encourage and equip you in your walk and your outreach to your world. So what you saw with these 30 or some people up here that were being commissioned, they've done a deep dive in their walk with God and now their influence to the world, their gifts and what he's calling them to. It's a beautiful picture of that. We wanna invite more of you into that. But you don't even have to do two-year discipleship. We wanna equip you in other ways in your walk and your world. And part of what it means to walk with God is spending time in his word, not to become a smarter sinner, <laughs> but to be transformed from the inside out because God's word's living and active. And when you spend time in God's word, it's gonna do its work in you. And it's beautiful, not stale, you see. So we wanna teach you how you can engage it in a way that's life-giving. Individually, corporately, we will continue to make God's word central to our worship service and every ministry of fellowship. Now, to that end, I'm gonna take a quick divergence, and I'm going to share with you, by way of announcement, something that I think is a good step for us. Many of you will think it's no big deal. It's a small thing. Others of you will think it's pretty significant. Up till now, the last number of years, we've been teaching Sunday mornings from the New American Standard Bible. 
As of today, we're switching to the English Standard Version, the ESV. Now, why would we do that? Uh, First of all, let me tell you, we don't dislike the New American Standard. It's a great translation. It just so happens we believe the English Standard, which is very, very similar, is slightly better. And I want to explain why we think it's slightly better. There are lots of great English translations out there, lots of them, not just two, but the two that are probably, at least in our vernacular, the the closest to the original text or the word-for-word translations would be the New American Standard and the English Standard Version. So why would we jump from one to the other? It's not really a big deal in some ways. In some ways, I think it is. Here's the difference between NASB and ESB. More often than not, when NASB has, has a word that's kind of fallen out of use in our English language, the ESV has a bit more of a contemporary word. This has nothing to do with being politically correct. You don't even need to go there. Both of these translations are very conservative, actually. But it has a lot to do with making as few barriers as possible between the English translation we read and how we use words in 2019. Let me give you just a few examples. And these are all small. And I want you to know, you don't have to go out and buy a new Bible tomorrow unless you want to. You know, NASB is great, but I want to give you a few reasons why you think the ESV is a little bit better, a few examples. A couple of weeks ago, I taught from James 5.19, and the 5.19 starts out, my brethren. That's New American Standard. ESV, my brothers. More common word. James 2.25, NASB, Rahab the harlot. ESV, Rahab the prostitute. Same word, a little more contemporary usage. Ecclesiastes 10.16, we taught that a few months ago, maybe longer, within the last year. NASB, woe to you, a land whose king is a lad. ESV, woe to you, a land when your king is a child. Little examples like that. And as Lloyd and I have preached, we found ourselves in the New American Standard, maybe about every three or four weeks, with a word that we felt like we had to explain. And more often than not, we would choose a word that would be a bit different. And more often than not, that word was already in the ESV. So we've thought fantastic translations. Both of them are. This one's going to be a little more clearer. Um, The other factor for us, and this is not insignificant, the ESV has about 10 times as many resources in that translation as the New American Standard does. If you go to the Christian bookstore or look on amazon.com, there's tons of study Bibles and all kinds of great tools out there in ESV. The section of NASB is really small. Why? It's an older translation and the, the publisher hasn't been keeping resources as up to date. So we want to put as many good tools in your hand as possible. There is a table out in the lobby as you go on the right where you can see some of these great resources that are in the ESV translation. All right, maybe not a big deal for many of you. We think it matters because we're a word-centered church. We take learning God's word seriously and we want to teach it in a way that's as clear as possible while still being accurate and true. And we think the ESV is slightly better in that regard. All right, so we're going to learn God's word. A lot of ways that's going to happen, not just through teaching. Next, let's talk about loving God's word because this is the harder one, right? You can't make yourself love anything. You cannot. You can choose to live out actions of love. It's going to be that next one. But let's just talk about the emotions and the desires. You can't make yourself have emotion and desire for something. The Hebrew people not only learned God's word, they loved God's word. And how do we know? Because it flowed out in their poetry. You know, a lot of the Psalms is actually songs about the word of God. The longest Psalm in the Bible is also the longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119. Listen to what the psalmist wrote in this. 
I won't read the whole thing, trust me. My heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great riches. Do you think that way about God's word? I don't tend to, if I'm honest. Great peace have those who love your law. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I want us to grow to be a body that would say that more easily. I love God's word exceedingly. Uh, How will we get there? Well, I think there's two things to keep in mind. Number one, we will never love God's word until we recognize in it God's presence with us and God's work in us. Goes back to the first part of the verse. If you don't see God's word as living and active, like if you don't find in it, this is how God is with me, at least in in, in one way he's with me, is by speaking to me these words. And this is how God is working in me, changing me deep down in my heart through his word. If you don't see God's word that way, you won't love it. It's just gonna be a stale book for you. Secondly, we will never love God's word until we find in it the one who is himself the living word of God. At the right moment in redemptive history, the word took on flesh. And every page points to him. Every verse finds its ultimate meaning and fulfillment in him. The words in this book are his words, not just the red letter words. The whole is the word of God, which means it's Jesus words because he embodied the word presence of God the activity of God embodied in a person this is why we read the Bible not just to encounter Christ not just to become better theologians or sorry not just to um, uh, we, we, we read it to encounter Christ not just to become better theologians by the way I hope you do become a better theologian but I hope you don't become a better theologian apart from Jesus Christ and finding his life in his word. Now, why is that cross so important at the center of that? Because your heart doesn't long for a text. Your heart longs for a living relationship with a person. But the text is intricately connected to the person. It's a primary expression of his presence with you and a primary means of his work in you. And the Holy Spirit is what ties all this together, the Holy Spirit of Christ that indwells you. You see this. As we read and study, we meet Jesus. We get to know him. We abide with him. We are remade by him. By the way, in John 15, when he says, you know, apart from me, you can do nothing, so abide in me and I abide in you. Then he says, Abide in me. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. You see, he's connecting abiding with him with abiding with his words. Then you will bear much fruit. So we learn God's word. We want to love God's word. By the way, we got to pray for that. Can't will it. We got to pray for it. And then from that place, we live God's word. Why is it important that you learn to love God's word even before you live it, or at least as you live it? Here's why. If you try to just go from learning it to living it, you're going to engage with the world with a lack of love, you see. And, and how often have we seen that in social media contexts and others? We're just, we're trying to pound people with the word of God rather than use the word of God as a source of life to give them life. Huge difference, you see. 
This is a wholehearted approach to it. Learn God's word, love God's word, and let that, let that love of God's word stir in you a love for the people you're engaging with, and then we can begin to live God's word. I'm gonna close with this. If you learn it, even love it, but don't live it, how will you help other people find life in Jesus? I believe in my core that what our society needs more than anything else is not more bumper stickers, not more social media posts, not even more books about the faith, although each of those have their place. Not sure about the bumper stickers. But what our society needs more than anything else is a people who will embody the word of God who will put flesh on it like our Savior did. You see, this is how we follow Jesus. Jesus is the Word incarnate, in flesh, lived out. We are to be his body. He's not here for them to see. We are. How are they going to encounter him unless we don't embody his words for them, if we don't represent his presence and speak his truth so that they can see his work? Now, we do this, learn, love, live, so that our generation might encounter the living word, Jesus Christ, who is himself, the word of God. This is what it looks like for us to be a word-centered church. We learn the word, come to love the word, and we live the word. Bow your head with me as we pray. Our Father, I want to ask you for this because I don't have the skill or the passion or the energy to convey what I believe to be true, what you have spoken through your text this morning. It's not in me as a teacher to do your work. I'm trusting your spirit speaking through this text this morning to do your work. By your spirit, may we become a more word-centered people, a people who learn your word, love your word, live your word. May we, in the words of Psalm 119, say, give us understanding that we may keep your law and observe it with our whole hearts. Would these words be made true in our church, in our fellowship groups, in our families? among our young adults and single adults, in our men's groups, women's groups, discipleship groups, in our local ministry, in our global ministry, in our children's ministry, in our student ministry. And may we, as a body, most of all, find in your word the living word himself. And may we love him and follow him and center our lives on him. Because it's in his name that we pray. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. Who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. 
Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. I will meditate on your precepts. And fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I I will will not forget your word. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. I am a sojourner on the earth. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Give me life according to your word. Teach me, O Lord. Give me understanding. Lead me. Incline my heart. Turn my eyes. Confirm to your servant. Turn away the reproach. Behold, Behold, I I long long for for your precepts. I trust in your word. My hope is in your rules. I have sought your precepts. I find my delight in your commandments, which Which I I love. Which I love. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promises give me life. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Let your steadfast love comfort me. Let your mercy come to me. Let the insolent be put to shame. Let those who fear you turn to me, that they may know your testimonies. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your Your word is a lamp to my feet and and a light to my path. You are my hiding place and my shield. I I hope in your word. Uphold me according to your promise. I love your law. My eyes long for your salvation. I hope in your word. Your testimonies are wonderful. I I love your law. Your promise is well tried. I hope in your word. Your testimonies are righteous forever. I I love your law. I hope in your word. I love your law. I hope in your word. I hope in your word. I love your law. I love your law. I hope in your word. I hope in your word. I love your law. I hope in your word. I love your law. I love your law. I love your law. With my whole heart I cry. Answer me, O Lord. I will keep your statutes. My lips pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. Let my soul live and praise you, and let your rules help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord.